Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Well, February is Psychology Month in Canada, and with a hard 2020 behind us, it's important for those who have struggled with their mental health to find the support they need. Now, the stats are startling. In any given year, one in five Canadians experiences a mental health or addiction problem, and by the time Canadians reach the age of 40 years old, one in two have or have had a mental health illness. 70% of mental health problems have their onset during childhood and adolescence, showing that young people below the age of 25 are more likely to develop a mental health condition and substance abuse disorder. It's important to know that mental and physical health are linked. People with a long-term medical condition such as chronic pain are much more likely to also experience mood disorders. Conversely, people with a mood disorder are at a much higher risk of developing a long-term medical condition. So this is an important and universal topic. And today to talk about some of the community supports available for those that are suffering are two representatives from the Canadian Mental Health Association. Glenn Royal, who'll be joining us for the first part of the show, and Bailey Reed, who's the Manager of Policy and Public Engagement at the CMHA. Glenn's community involvement in educating around mental health and reducing its stigma are both extensive and impactful. He sits on and has been involved with a number of Government of Newfoundland and Labrador boards and committees since 2009 and was one of the public faces in the 2015 Government of Newfoundland Anti-Stigma for Mental Health and Addictions called Understanding Changes Everything. He speaks on a provincial and national level on his own incredible recovery story and national mental health advocacy. He's encouraged family members, friends, and even strangers to take action and responsibility with respect to their mental health and wellness. I don't think we could ask for a better person to walk us through why mental health awareness is important here in the province. So let's check it out. Hi, Glenn. Welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Thanks for the invitation. Well, I'm really glad you're here because this is an extremely important topic. You are a very active member of the community when it comes to being an advocate for mental health. But one of the big goals you have is to reduce the stigma around mental health. Can you explain why that's important? It's critically important for overall wellness is that like if you have a broken arm or a broken leg or cancer or any other sort of physical illness, people have no problem going seeking out help or talking to their loved ones. But when it comes to if you're dealing with depression or anxiety or PTSD, people want to kind of keep that into the closet sort of thing. And as I always keep saying, if you know your body and your mind is not disconnected sort of thing and more that we can talk about it and get access to better services and supports, the healthier the communities are around the globe. Right. And I think that one thing that people don't realize is that we're all very susceptible to mental health conditions of varying degrees throughout our lifetime. What's the likelihood of someone developing a mental health condition? Uh, it's it's fairly high. Uh, the stats that the Mental Health Commission has put out last year, they're saying by the time people reach the age of 40, it could be one in two. And I always think those stats are potentially higher sort of thing, because that's just what the stats, the, the governing bodies or these organizations are are, are capturing because I think it, it's it's a bigger issue out there than people realize. Mm -hmm. And when you say mental health conditions, what would be some of the diagnosis or conditions themselves that we would have heard of in our day-to-day -day life? 
everything from anxiety to depression to OCD to uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, eating disorders falls under that. You know, you got your more complex situations of people that are dealing with bipolar or schizophrenia. So it's a wide range of issues. And then you can also potentially, you know, link some aspect of addictions and, and substance abuse in because there's some kind of concurrent disorders. Right. And those those sound like they can make it challenging for the individual. How do these mental health conditions impact people's lives on a day-to-day basis? For some people, it can be totally debilitating. Some people, you know, have difficulties just getting out of bed, getting a shower, you know, just daily functioning of eating or, or going to work. And some other people have issues in the workplace where, you know, they're challenged because their anxiety is up, you know, public speaking is always required sort of thing. So it, it can affect many people in different different ways. Mm. There's a bigger picture here of, you know, if we take care of each other and support people through their mental health challenges, that makes our community better too, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, regardless of what you're going through, everybody's going through something at any particular juncture in their life. And I always keep saying never criticize or judge because you don't know if you could be on the other aspect dealing with a mental health illness or concern. And you would like to have somebody to support you versus judge and criticize you. Right. And I think a lot of people, you know, you've got your family to support you, which is great. And you've got our medical system, which we're very fortunate in Canada to have a medical system at our fingertips. But a lot of times people are spending a significant amount of time at work. And I've actually done some training through the CMHA to become a psychological safety advisor. What are some things that the workplace can do to support people's mental health? Uh, like you say, that's an incredibly good program that you went through, Mike. Uh, there's a program called Not Myself Today, which is an educational program for employers and employees uh, dealing with their feelings and dealing with various mental health stresses sort of thing. Uh, the Mental Commission of Canada uh, just released uh, a thing, I think, a couple of days ago on their website for employers and employees uh, for workplace mental health. So there's a lot of resources, CMHA, uh, like you say, in terms of Not Myself Today, they got that program. So reach out. Uh, talk to your uh, your your HR person or your health and safety advisor in your company and see what can be done because it's 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 critical. No different than like first aid, you know. And there's mental health first aid as well. Mm. Uh, no different than physical first aid. Right, and I mean, I, and there's a business case for it too. Not just that you want to take care of your people because that's the right thing to do, but having people being supported in their workplace through their mental health challenges or to prevent it to begin with, that's good for the the company too, right? Absolutely. I mean, the the stat the Mental Health Commission of Canada has released a couple of years ago is that the Canadian economy with a half a million people that don't go to work on a daily basis throughout the year, it's over 50 or nearly 60. And even on a global perspective, I've heard uh, in a training last year, it, it tops well over a trillion. So that's a huge economic fall to, to the economies and, and business and business owners. Right. It's one of those lose-lose situations. The company loses, but the individual who's at home suffering from a mental health condition isn't benefiting at all from not being at the workplace. It's it's good if they can be supported. One of the things we used to do was the Bell Let's Talk Day. What's that all about? That's a uh, an initiative that uh, Bell Canada and BC undertook uh, well over, I think this is the 11th or 12th year. And George Coppola, who was the CEO at the time, said that we really need to start to invest in the, the reduction of stigma, not just from a business standpoint, but from a you know, global society standpoint sort of thing. And they created uh, this initiative and uh, they've had everybody from Clara, Carla Hughes to uh, Mary Deacon, who was the, the chair of the mental health initiative, which I've met and she just received an order 
of Canada last year for her, her involvement and her work sort of thing. And a lot of people think it's a free marketing tool for the corporation, but at the end of the day, it gets people talking about no different than RBC does a lot for youth. And I think a lot of companies should step up, even corporate Canada, corporate Newfoundland, and do similar sort of initiatives. Well, you know, it probably gets the conversation going about what are some of the stresses in the workplace. And I'd have to think that during the pandemic, there's different stresses that are emerging with people. What are some of the things that you're hearing about these days, given people's new work reality? Several things, uh, Mike, would be uh, everything from the vantage point that people are working from home. So, you know, that work-life balance where they may have children or teenagers that, you know, and trying to balance, the, you know, their work schedules with their family commitments. The issue of the virus in general with the pandemic where people are quite fear, even though we've done very well in this province, keeping our numbers very low. So, uh, you know, a number of things and, and then like productivity goes and then people kind of role to vices and other things that, uh, you know, lose productivity for the workplace. Right. You know, one of the things that I heard has been on the rise, and you said it earlier, is addictions. How does addictions play into the, the role with the CMHA? Uh, addictions playing the role of CMHA is that, uh, you know, we kind of understand that people use substances, if it be an alcohol or drugs or gambling, to kind of deal with what they're dealing with. But at the end of the day, people have the right to choose what they want to do. But people sometimes make bad choices. I think if people can use more healthier alternatives, either connecting with family, friends, or supports out in the community, it's better for everybody. I personally, you know, for, for my length of dealing with anxiety and uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, for a long period of time, I've never been on medication. And I always feel being connected to good supports has kept me well. And hopefully others could take that as a little piece of advice because ultimately using substances are going to create other physical concerns to the body. Right. Well, there's coping mechanisms that are good and there's coping mechanisms that are bad, right? And I guess Correct. Sort of figuring out what those positive ones are is what's going to help people not go further down into a viral if they're having mental health challenges. The question I, I think is most relevant today is how can somebody tell if they're struggling? If you have a broken bone, you can tell it's a broken bone. You have a headache, you can tell you a headache. But how does somebody know that they might be struggling with a mental health condition? Well, like everybody has their ups and downs. So like you could be going through just a difficult time in life. But if it persists, it interferes in your daily living, your relationships, your work, uh, your community involvement, uh, seek out for treatment if it's, you know, through your GP or, uh, you know, referral to a psychologist or psychiatrist or any other supports in the community. Right. And there's so many different types of mental health conditions that it is worth you checking it out. Even if it's not actually there, it's better to find out than to allow something to go worse, especially because there's such a broad variety that there's experts that can help diagnose it. Absolutely. And there's always new degrees of training and education that the professionals are offering sort of thing. So if you feel, you know, there's never an opportunity not to ask a question. I always keep saying the only question is not asking a question. Hmm. Right, right. Well, we've had, there's lots of things we need to learn. I learn something every, every time I interview somebody for this show. It's pretty enlightening. Well, thanks so much, Glenn. I really appreciate you taking the time today and sharing all that information. If people want to get a hold of somebody at the CMHA, how do they do that? Simple. You can reach out to uh, the CMHA and L.ca, or if you want to uh, find any of me, I'm on all various social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or you can contact me by email. It's Glenn Royal, G-L-E-N-N-R-O-I-L 75 at gmail.com. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's great to chat with you. I hope to see you around soon. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate the invitation. Very important topic to be covered in the community. 
That was Glenn Royal, mental health advocate. When we get back, we'll be joined by Bailey Reed, manager of policy and public engagement for the CMHA here in Newfoundland and Labrador. She'll share more about the CMHA and how it can help residents here at home. Welcome back. In this part of the show, we're joined by Bailey Reed, Manager of Policy and Public Engagement at the CMHA here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Bailey works to develop and expand creative policy and programming, which addresses social and structural issues, particularly in mental health and addictions, as well as violence prevention. Her experience includes working with various populations and intersections of people, like children, youth, adults, seniors, gender diverse populations, First Nations of Canada, Inuit, and people of all variations of class, culture, ability, and ethnicity. Her role at the CMHA is to share info about the programs available to those in our province. So let's check out our conversation. Hi Bailey, welcome to the show. Hi Mike, how are you? I'm great, I'm great. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. We're talking about mental health today and it is Mental Health Awareness Month in Canada and you are involved with the Canadian Mental Health Association. Can you tell me a bit about that? So I am the manager of policy and public engagement with the Canadian Mental Health Association. So the CMHA is a nonprofit organization. So while we're funded by government, um, we're actually a nonprofit and a charity. And we are very adaptive to the growing and changing needs of the people in our communities. So our organization offers mainly mental health promotion, mental health education, and trainings that people can avail of. But also, uh, we also have the justice program as well that works with folks who are incarcerated and looking to recover in the community and get back into life. And uh, so we have some social workers there who provide case management and support. So that's an amazing program we've had running for many years out of the Canadian Mental Health Association. And on top of that, uh, we often put off lots of different fundraisers and uh, you know community engagement events. And then my position at the CMHA is in policy and public engagement. So I do things like this. I talk to folks like you around what it is that our organization can do. And then I also talk to folks around their experiences using mental health and addiction services. So that's, that's a cool side of my job as well. Newfoundland faces some unique challenges when it comes to all aspects of health. What are some of the things that we struggle with here in Newfoundland when it comes to mental health? Well, I think that pre-COVID, we always had a bit of an more of an oppressive economic climate. So I think with the added layer of COVID on top of that, it adds to extra um, stresses and strains. Employment and obviously finances are a huge part of having positive mental well-being and people who are providing for their families. COVID has definitely had a huge impact. Also, the sense of isolation, of course, you know, human beings need connection. They need to be connected to others. So the isolation has been difficult. People want to, they don't get the same face-to-face interactions. They don't get to, you know, see their counselor or have that hug from a family member or a friend. And while technology certainly can bring us a long way, and, and certainly it has, COVID has definitely added an extra layer of oppression on our folks in the province, especially economically. Let's look at how 2020 and the pandemic impacted our mental health as Canadians. 
As we talked about in the intro of the show, youth are most susceptible to mental health and addiction issues and have also experienced the greatest decline since the start of the pandemic. For those already experiencing poor mental health before COVID-19, it was found that they were impacted even more by the pandemic. Meanwhile, visible minority groups were more likely to report poor mental health and symptoms consistent with moderate or severe generalized anxiety disorder. And those reporting poor mental health were up to four times more likely to report an increase in substance abuse since the pandemic began. But perhaps the most challenging occurrence was the loss of employment for many people. It's been shown that there's a link between economic downturns and changes in mental health. Since COVID-19, significant declines in mental health has been observed among employment groups as compared to the pre-COVID levels. But here's an interesting stat, and that is that at the start of the pandemic, those not working due to COVID-19 reported the lowest levels of excellent or very good mental health at 34%. The good news is that this group reported the largest increase in July at 61%, and this is probably due to the support programs that were available. So there may be light at the end of the tunnel for some with a chance of vaccines and the return to new normal. However, many are still quietly suffering. That's why it's so important to have a discussion about mental health and what supports are available to you. Let's get back to the interview. The pandemic has changed things and you guys are dealing with a lot of the really, really heavy topics and helping train people. One of the programs I was exposed to that you offer is the mental health first aid. I used to work offshore and when I'd be out there, we had sometimes people had mental health crisis and they needed peer support. And that was a program that was used a lot. How does that program work and what are some of the other things that you guys offer? Yeah, so John Din is definitely somebody for folks to reach out to uh, at the Canadian Mental Health Association around workplace trainings for mental mm-hmm. health. So he offers mental health first aid in the workplace. He also offers assist suicide prevention training, and that's been fantastic. I've also I also offer assist mm-hmm. um, and co-facilitate that, and that's a training to be aware of warning signs. Uh, or, around someone who may be thinking of suicide um, and then how to provide a life-saving intervention to them. John Din also provides psychological health and safety for the workplace and also for executives. And yeah, those are just some of the, you know, mental health trainings that we do for workplaces, but we also do mental health trainings just for communities and, and for folks who are just interested in promoting their mental health and their well-being and, and doing something a little different. So we do a course, uh, I teach a course called Living Life to the Full. We have three, I think, facilitators in our office, uh, in our offices across the province in Living Life to the Full. It can be done virtually and it's an eight-week mental health promotion course. And it's based on cognitive behavioral therapy principles, which what I mean by that is that cognitive behavioral therapy is how your thoughts affect your behaviors, which affect your emotions, which can affect physical symptoms. Mm -hmm. So we learn how to maybe change one thing on that wheel and take more control over our lives. And we do that over the course of eight weeks. And I've done that both with youth, with seniors and with uh, adults. And uh, it's been a fantastic, a fantastic course. I've really seen people feel significantly better after those eight weeks. And it's been really rewarding. So you help with the ASSIST Suicide Prevention Program. Suicide is obviously a very serious topic. Can you tell me a bit more about that course and also what are some 
things people should watch for themselves that they feel like they might be leaning towards that really scary endpoint? So the course and it really initially teaches you to open up and talk, number one, about your experiences with suicide, because suicide has touched all of our lives in some way, shape or form, be it somebody close to us or somebody in our periphery. So we learn really how to talk about it and how to make it an open topic and not that really closed, stigmatized, this is something we don't talk about. And that's a very powerful initiation in the beginning of uh, the ASSIST course, because before we can even get into training you, you need to be able to talk openly about suicide, be them personal, be them very, very close to your heart or, you know, something that was just in your periphery or in your community or in your workplace. So we get people acquainted with that. And then we move people into understanding some of the, the warning signs or invitations that people may give out. So oftentimes people do give out invitations that they're in distress, small things that they may say or do giving away items or even just, you know, comments that they may make about things being worthless or feeling, you know, a low sense of self-worth or having no purpose. So these are all invitations to ask about suicide. And we train people to ask the question, are you thinking about suicide? That is an important thing because when it's actually talked about and discussed and the word suicide is used, people feel there's a release, like they can talk about it. It's not something they need to keep to themselves. So we teach people that and then we teach them how to do a life-saving intervention. So basically we do a, a, a safety plan with folks and help them get connected to the resources that they need in order to keep safe for now. Because while we're there in the moment with an individual, uh, if we're doing a, uh, an intervention with somebody, uh, we can only keep them safe for now. We can never keep anyone safe for the lifespan, but we can keep somebody safe for now. And that's what the assist course teaches. It's great to have in workplaces because you make your employees more suicide alert and suicide aware. We also do safe talk as well, which is the youth version of assist where they do not learn how to do an intervention with somebody, but they learn what the signs are and how to bring them to a person who is assist trained, who can provide that life-saving intervention. So um, that's another course that I teach as well. And a couple of other folks uh, in our organization teach that as well. And uh, another thing about just our trainings is that where we are a charity and where we are a nonprofit organization, the private sector needs to step up to the plate and continue to help fund us to do the amazing things that we do. We are able to create services. I can create presentations or do projects that really help this province. But the only way that we can do that is if we are provided with the funding to build the capacity to do so. So really, that's important to give back to your community. And that that's why why, you know, we have charities and that's why we have nonprofit organizations. You know, we give to you and you give back to us. And it's a it's a mutual thing. Well, that's Bailey Reed, manager of policy and public engagement at the CMHA here in Newfoundland and Labrador. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back. I'm here with Bailey Reed, Manager of Policy and Public Engagement at the CMHA here in Newfoundland and Labrador. She's sharing the various programming offered by the CMHA and why mental health is so important to us as individuals and as communities. 
So not only do you guys offer the formal courses to organizations and to people, but you also do outreach to different companies that are looking to add mental health into the workplace, for example. And I know, you know, from my personal side, I used to be involved in the field of wellness. Not every company has money to spend on bringing in guest speakers and doing promotions. What do you guys do for groups that are looking for help? Well, this is the thing, you know, where we're a charity, you know, if we get enough funding, we can actually provide for individuals, groups and communities, not just trainings, but education sessions, presentations, focus groups. I can go in and do educational groups with families on living with an individual for caregivers, like groups for caregivers who of individuals who are living with mental illness. I can go in and do uh, lots of different educational programming. While I can't do anything clinical, I can really create a lot of different stuff to meet the needs of my community. So that's the cool part is that when we have the funding to do so, we're really able to go out there and be adaptive and be innovative in the approaches that we take. So yes, while we also have, you know, our training programs and our mental health promotion courses, we're always open to innovating our services and expanding and growing and being what our community needs. And especially at times like now when change, especially during COVID is just so perverse, we want to adapt and we want to adapt quickly. So So uh, that's a cool part of our organization is that we can do presentations, we can do public speaking, we can do group events, we can do research projects, we can do lots Mm -hmm. as long as we have the funding capacity to do so. Right. And that might be a great way to increase awareness and interest in some other courses where they can take a more formal route later on by, by introducing the concepts to the group of people and then they can decide if they want to move forward from there. Absolutely. Right. And so that part of that is, does that create advocates within it to help reduce the stigma? Because I've got to think that as much as mental health is in the forefront, we feature a lot of topics on mental health in the show because it is such an important aspect of health. How is the stigma, well, still existing, but also how is it changing with awareness like this? Right. Well, I think awareness like this is allowing people to talk about it more and and know that, you know, their lived experience has has merit. It has value. It has insight. I think for a really long time, we've been looking at things from the systems perspective. So how many people went to the emergency room this year at the health science uh, for a mental health concern? But that really doesn't tell us the in-depth story. So I, I think when we're talking about reducing stigma and programs like the Canadian Mental Health Association and what we offer, we're allowing that narrative from people with lived experience to unfold. So we're open to not only providing these trainings, but hearing the stories of the folks that we are training or that you know we're doing a mental health promotion uh, uh, session with. And then on top of that, that's part of my, my position in policy. Well, I get calls all the time uh, from folks who may have uh, utilized services at the Waterford Hospital or in any psychiatric units uh, across the province uh, in uh, any hospital. So those stories are important because these are the folks, these people with lived experience, these are the folks who, who understand the system and who know really what needs to change. And when people feel like they have a voice and they have a platform and they have something to offer, that is what breaks more of the stigma. We need more people to come out with their stories and we need more listening, listening ears really. So that's what I like to put out there about the Canadian Mental Health Association is that, you know, while we are not providing any counseling or clinical services, we certainly are a listening ear and we do love to hear the story from folks in our community who have used mental health and addiction services, be them positive experiences or negative ones. 
Right. And I think that, you know, not only are you helping the people that have gone through the system or had lived experiences, but your program that I actually did was the psychological safety advisor training, which is teaching organizations to preemptively identify what the risk factors are in their workplace that could potentially lead to crisis in the future or or reduced mental health for the people working there. So that's that's very admirable and it allows people to say, okay, this is part of the work environment for once. How has that changed when it comes to the type of programming you're offering that now, because it's more out there, you're seeing it in places like the workplace or you're seeing it in communities? I think we're just we're just starting to have workplaces become more open to understanding that mental health and mental illness is an important concept to be aware of in your workplace. And um, in order to to promote health and to promote, I, I guess, best efficiency and effectiveness, when folks feel accommodated, when they feel respected, I think they're going to be able to work harder and do better when we give people the accommodations that we need. But I feel in a sense, too, that we've become a little bit too much of a culture of accommodation Mm -hmm. and less so one of universal acceptance. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's why, you know, organizations like the Canadian Mental Health Association are so important because we, we need to keep progressing. It can't just always be about accommodation. We need to keep progressing to a state of understanding and pushing the the ideology that mental health is a part of being a human being. Everybody has mental health, right? Everybody has mental mm-hmm. health. Mm-hmm. And at some point in time in our lives, we may have experienced mental illness, whether acute or chronic. So I think we in our organization, we keep pushing the ideology of how important it is to recognize that this is this is a part of being human. And universal acceptance within you know systems can be a little bit slower, like workplaces adapting mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. the needs of, of folks around them. But I think it's um it's it's definitely changing, and that's what we keep trying to promote with our trainings and and especially within workplaces too, right? Well, I think one of the things that I've noticed about CMHA is that mental health isn't just considered an individual medical problem. It's considered a challenge for society as well. And that's why there's a need to address it. Can you explain what that means? Right. So often we've looked at mental illness from a biomedical model. So we've looked at it from that medical standpoint. And when we look at it from only that perspective, it becomes medical issues have always been a very private, personal concern. And while, yes, they certainly are, mental health and mental illness is also a result of our social conditions and our world around us. So the social determinants of health also have a huge impact on people's mental health, like we were talking about earlier with the Newfoundland economy. So economics, financial situations, housing, your workplaces and how healthy or unhealthy they may be, your family and your social connections, all of those things coalesce and come together to create your state of wellness and your state of being in the world. Mm -hmm. So we need to not just treat a medical condition, but there are other things that we need to treat as well. Like in my social work education, I learned that the holistic assessment of a person is the biological. It's a biopsychosocial spiritual. So mm-hmm. the biological, psychological, social, and spiritual. And I think we're getting a little bit better at treating the social and understanding the underlying fundamentals of, you know, housing impacting mental health and finances impacting mental health and, and all 
all those other social conditions. But I also feel that uh, we have yet to really discover how the um, spiritual can impact mental health and healing. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate for that. And spirituality, I use that term very, very broadly. Um, It can look different for every individual, but I definitely know that uh, spirituality is a protective factor in through the trajectory of the lifespan for individuals. So I encourage people to seek their own truths and expand on what spirituality means for them, because it can certainly be a protective factor um, for their health and for their mental health as well. That's Bailey Reed, Manager of Policy and Public Engagement at the CMHA here in Newfoundland and Labrador. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back. I'm here with Bailey Reed, Manager of Policy and Public Engagement at the CMHA here in Newfoundland and Labrador. She's sharing the various programming offered by the CMHA and why mental health is so important to us as individuals and to our communities. What are some of the channels people can look for in the community that can help them if they're struggling? Well, I think, I think oftentimes we, we scream self-care at people. And while self-care is certainly an important part of healing and wellness, I think we need community care as well. So what I mean by community care is organizations like the Canadian Mental Health Association. That's we are open to listening to people's stories and experiences, as I've said throughout the interview. And people can reach me at my email anytime if they want to discuss their personal lived experience story. While I cannot provide clinical advice in my role, I'm certainly a listening ear. And uh, and that helps me to understand on the ground what people are experiencing through our mental health and addiction system and in their lives and the issues that are presenting in our province. And I think that's important for someone in policy to know. So people can reach out to me at B-R-E-I-D at C-M-H-A-N-L dot C-A, um, or they can certainly call me and I'm uh, available at the Canadian Mental Health Association. So they can find that number on Google. And if they don't have internet, it is 753-8550 and I'm extension 105. But other than the Canadian Mental Health Association and feeling connected in their community to us, I think Channel is another really amazing community organization that does a lot of group services where folks who have lived experience of mental illness can come in, sit down and discuss with other folks what their experiences are. And uh, also they have peer-to-peer support. They have the warm line, which I'm sure you've heard of. And the warm line is amazing. You're talking to a professional, but you're talking to a peer support professional. So someone who's lived it, someone who has lived experience of addictions or, you know, mental illness. And, you know, that that's very empowering. And there's less of that sense of power differential between a professional client. You're speaking to a peer. And that's often a really great first step for people to feel connected in the community. One of the things I would like to see in our community is crisis bids or a crisis home um, that's open on hours that are not your general normal hours um, because crisis can happen at any time, anywhere. And oftentimes it does happen after 4 PM on a Friday, you know? So I would love to see an organization um, get started here that provided acute crisis beds where people could come and rest when they were going through a crisis of any kind, 
low, low entry criteria. They could just come on in through the doors and that there are people there who, you know, are just trained to sit and listen to you and connect with you. And maybe you could get a shower there or have something to eat just to level out and, uh, and get back to baseline until you're ready to re-enter or be connected then with further services in our community. So that's, that's a community uh, service and connection that I would like to see in our province and that I think is, is well needed. Well, you have good optics on what we need here in the province. Your background, of course, professionally and being involved in CMHA, but you also were in charge of the public reporting project. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yes. So the public reporting project is will be the first independent public report on the um, state of the mental health and addiction system here in the province. So um, we've previously had reports that have come out like toward recovery in 2017 on our mental health and addiction system toward recovery was amazing. Um, I think they came out with uh, 50 or 70 recommendations on uh, system change. And what we're trying to do at the CMHA is measure that progress, you know, how much of these recommendations have already been implemented and and what do we need to kind of keep up on public reporting um, independent of government is actually you know a really great thing because it 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 promotes accountability. It promotes transparency to the public. I think it's a really important role and it's something CMHA is just pioneering and starting out on. We finally completed the report and we completed it through, I talked to 40 folks across the province of Newfoundland and Labrador on their experience using the system. And I just listened to their stories. And so I accumulated all that data and I came up with some major themes that I heard from all 40 of these folks. What is the the goal? So you audit the different interventions, the recommendations that were done and you see which ones have been done, which ones haven't been done. What's the next step after that? How do you help to continue to move the ball forward? Well, I'm hoping that what what our value add is, is the lived experience perspective. So perhaps, you know, we, we do plan to continue to do these reports. This report will come out in May 2021. The first week of May is our, uh, our hopeful publishing date. Um, that's Mental Health Week. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're hoping that government agencies and policymakers and community will all read this report. The report is called Embracing Experiences. Mm-hmm. And we're hoping that not only does it impact people by fighting stigma and helping people understand and feel that they're a PLE, I can tell my story and be heard, but also for higher level systems to um, implement more qualitative research into health system performance. So that's that's another huge goal of our report. And we plan to do these reports uh, on a biannual basis. And uh, our next step is to really, really engage with our First Nation partners in Labrador. That's a huge, huge and Newfoundland, which is a huge part of our our next piece, building those relationships, getting in and doing those interviews with folks from from those areas and and really understanding, you know, the needs of our First Nation communities and our Inuit communities. So that's sort of our next step in pursuing the public, the next phase, I would say, of the public reporting project. But we're certainly looking very forward to the feedback from our first public report uh, in May 2021. 
Right. And, you know, for anybody listening, I did biostatistics and there's a whole field of biostatistics that look at qualitative things where numbers are easy to average and give a median and a mean and statistical significance, but words are not. And so frequency and dialogue and, and looking at case reports, that all has a tremendous amount of value. And that really adds some of those intangibles to the field of science. So that's, that's, a, that's probably a, a very large project, but it sounds like a, a great project to be doing. If somebody's listening and they are struggling, What's your advice to them? Because they may be suffering quietly, afraid to come forward and, and seek the help that's, uh, that is available, but may not be readily available given their circumstances. I would say make the call. Make the call to be it, you know, the mental health crisis line if they're in direct and immediate crisis or make the call to the channel warm line where you're talking to a peer support professional, or you can make the call to me and you can talk to me about your story. And like I said, while I can't provide clinical advice, I can certainly be a listening ear and, uh, and you know, hope to prevent cri- further crisis in that way and help individuals get directed to the next service that they may utilize properly. So I think really talking about talking about it and reaching out to someone is really the first big step. If you're feeling like you're in crisis and you're you're sitting silently, it's only going to worsen. And if you don't feel like there's any safety around you, any safe person, friend or family member who you can speak with, know that there is a community circle that goes beyond our regional health authorities that you can speak with and that can still be and remain private. So I encourage people to really reach out to that community sphere because oftentimes Times people don't realize that that community community services are how they're run and how they are not government run. And sometimes people want that kind of anonymity and privacy. So certainly to just be more aware of what community services are around you and do your research and have hope that somebody is out there and does want to listen. All right, Bailey, we're starting to clue up here. But any last thoughts for our listeners before we finish up? Last thoughts. Hmm. Well, I just I just want to reach out to whoever is listening, my fellow Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and folks, you know, who are here from any walk of life or any part of the planet, that you're welcome and you belong and that we have a sense of culture and connection and identity in this community that I think is very powerful. We've always been a community and an island and a province that welcomes people with open arms and that really is loving and and giving and connected. And I just want to encourage people to, to stay connected and to remain arms wide open, be there for your fellow human beings and for your fellow Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and take care of yourselves and feel free to reach out to me at the CMHA anytime. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of fear going on these days, but it's nice to be in a place that's as welcoming and uh, such a great, strong sense of community. I think people from away are looking at Newfoundland and saying, wow, what a great place to be right now. So we're really lucky and we're lucky to have supports like you guys. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I really appreciate it. And I know everybody listening did as well. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you to my guests, Glenn Royal and Bailey Reed for walking us through some of the community supports that exist through the Canadian Mental Health Association and how we can get help if we need it. For those of us who grew up in the generation of having Mr. Rogers on TV, we might now look back and see some profound philosophy in what he taught us. He once said, anything that's human is mentionable and anything that's mentionable can be manageable. 
When we can talk about our feelings, they become less overwhelming, less upsetting, and less scary. Well, we're happy to do our part in keeping the conversation going, so please do the same with your friends and family. Thanks for joining me today. Next week, we have a very special Valentine's Day episode on the science of love with Harvard professor and esteemed author, Dr. Richard Schwartz. It's one you won't want to miss. Until then, I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week on the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM.